Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Eroding beaches on Chicago's lakefront, warmer winters in the upper Midwest, microplastics in our water. What can any one person do? Our best hope for saving the planet and ourselves is through the power of we. Get to the ninth annual One Earth Film Festival, the Midwest's premier environmental film festival. It's March 6th through the 15th. March 6th through the 15th. When? March 6th through the 15th. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say the that. The 14th? No. Uh-uh. Pay attention. Take a piece of paper out and a pencil and okay. write it down. March 6th through the 15th. Okay? 15th. And there's 26 films, 48 events, and four counties. What is that again, D? 26. Films. 48. Events. Four. Counties. You can engage with filmmakers and experts. Venues include Tesla Gold Coast, Loyola University, Plant Chicago, Old St. Patrick's Church, Chicago Cultural Center, Lake Theater and Oak Park, and much more. Go to OneEarthFilmFest.org. What is that, D? OneEarthFilmFest.org. One more time. OneEarthFilmFest.org. <laughs> Dot org. God, are you good? That's correct. Ben, it might be our one-year show anniversary, but don't call me boy. <laughs> Put the bagel away. How's it going, everybody? We got to have a little meeting, everybody, all right? So check this out. Uh, today, we found out we got a copyright strike. So Strike one. Strike one. <laughs> so the reader and the Sun-Times both, uh, you know, help out on the show. The reader's getting copyright strikes and not the Chicago Sun-Times. We use licensed music through the sun times and i think it's that's why the reader's getting hit so we don't want that to happen so we're uh, we got new music here all right we're gonna have a new intro more on that in a minute so uh does this mean i can no longer sing a song at the start you know i was wondering if that's what it was <laughs> but i don't think that's what that is i don't think people can understand what that is <laughs> like who did i sing yesterday I can't remember. Maybe saying the Eagles last at the medley in honor of J.B. Pritzker, yeah. his favorite band. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's. Did we get the a copy. letter from the Eagles lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> Cease and desist, Ben. Okay. No, we got a letter from the Eagles. They want you as the new singer. <laughs> so yeah, it is our uh, one year, by the way. So uh, moving forward, new music, I guess, on the program. Glass half full here on the Ben Jarofsky show. I, I would sing Happy Birthday, except I think we would get hit with a cease and desist letter. No, from that's some actually uh, that's uh, in the domain. Happy Birthday's in the public domain. I I don't think that's so. Uh, <laughs> Let's bring on Jim Coogan and find out. I believe Happy Ace Birthday's Attorney. in the public domain. All but right, uh, you know what? Did you go to law school or radio school? Both. I can't remember. Okay. Radio law. <laughs> All right. Your Ben Jarofsky uh, show for Thursday, February 27th <laughs> with new music. Eyes mm -hmm. uh, moments away. But before we get into that, we got to thank the following unions for jumping on board and sponsoring this program. Unions like the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8. That's correct. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9. That's correct. The International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. That's correct. And of course, today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hit him with that song of the day, buddy. I'm worried about the lawyer, but just in case, I'm going to sing just anyway. Uh, don't sing well. <laughs> Basically, just sing like you normally do. Don't sing well. I don't think anybody's ever really had to worry about that with me, okay? Can't sing. Baby, I was born to run. Dennis's favorite band, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> the Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. It is Thursday, February 27th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. This song's kind of cool, right? Mm -hmm. Sounds like feeling it. Sounds a little like Doogie Howser. Today on the program, it's the return of In These Times writer Miles Camp Lassen. Peter P.C. Cunningham is back, and our cannabis conversations continue with Lisa Solomon and Edgar Ramon. <laughs> and now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this C in Court Thursday. 
And here's why. No, it has nothing to do with the situation that Dennis just alluded to. Uh, by the way, are, am I even allowed to say the name Bruce Springsteen without getting sued? Uh-oh, here comes a cease and desist letter. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yes, it has nothing to do with the, the situation that Dennis just alluded to instead. I woke up this morning to discover one Donald John Trump, president of the United States, who you think has a lot more important things to do than this, has sued the New York Times. Yes, yes, it's true. Donnie John Trump has sued the New York Times. He claims they have sullied his good name and reputation in a 2019 column that dealt with his relationship, Donald Trump's relationship, that is, with Vladimir Putin. Raises an interesting point. Can a reputation be sullied if it's not a good reputation to begin with? Excellent point. We're going to de- delve into that with our legal... Why are you pointing at me? Because it's an excellent point. <laughs> Duh. Uh, we're going to de- <laughs> take the deep dive sometime with Jim Coogan and, uh, on that subject. Can you sully a reputation that's already sullied? Hmm. We really wonder what our foremost legal authorities and uh, scholars have to say about that. Anyway... It raises another uh, issue in my mind, my complex relationship with the New York Times. Allow me to uh, take the deep dive. I am a home subscriber to the New York Times. I receive it. It lands on my porch every day. Boom. As a result, I am paying almost $1,000 a year, D, in subscription fees. I'm holding up the edifice, you might say, with my subscription. You're welcome. The rest of you cheapskates are just taking it for free when you pass it around on Facebook, etc. But you know what? It's what I'm doing for the good of humanity. I'm subscribing to the New York Times. As I pointed out, I also do this for the Chicago Tribune. Even Way the- to keep those listeners on our one-year uh, anniversary show. Call them all cheapskates. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I take it all back. You're not cheap. You're prudent. How about that? Ah, let Ben pay the fees. How about that? Uh, Chicago Tribune, also subscribe. Get a home su- subscription to that, even though I can't stand their dastardly editorials. And my beloved Bright One, I get a home subscription to that as well. Every day, June, one, two, three, newspapers land on my porch. So I'm supporting the New York Times. You're welcome, New York Times. Uh, even though I have so many issues with them. I, they're, they're columnists, just they have a, an aversion to anyone remotely resembling someone like me or Mick Fansler or Dennis or the Curls, anybody of the leftist persuasion. They're always like telling us, shut up, fall in line, stop complaining, support whoever we tell you to support. You're scaring swing voters in Wisconsin. And then they always have these articles where they go interview swing voters in Wisconsin who are saying, I'm very scared by Bernie Sanders. And then the headline is, Democrats really concerned because swing voters we interviewed at a mall were concerned about Bernie Sanders. I've been reading articles in the New York Times. Uh, You could substitute the name of the lefty. It's Bernie today. Uh, Before Bernie, it was, well, they didn't even bother with Dennis Kucinich. They just wrote him off as a joke. But George McGovern, they're always worried about how swing voters in some suburban mall are going to react to uh, Donald Trump. I mean, to a Bernie Sanders type of politician. So anyway, I support the New York Times, even though they find people like me a political embarrassment and they don't want to hang around us. They just want us to shut up and support the party. And yet, somehow or other, they've upset Donald Trump. They've been very consistent in their editorials criticizing Donald Trump. They've been very consistent in their news stories that hold them up to sort of rigorous analysis. Somehow or other, they've managed to both upset me and Donald Trump. And I'm sure, you know what, they they view that as like, a badge of pride, D, that they're, they're saying, we must be doing something right if we're upsetting Donald Trump and Ben Jarofsky. Although I, I hardly, I don't know if they know that I exist, even though I support their newspaper every day. So let me just say this uh, to you, New York Times. Uh, I, I'm happy that I subscribe to you. I'm happy that I'm holding up the edifice and helping pay for all your salaries. Uh, and I'm happy that you're writing rigorous articles and columns uh, criticizing or analyzing Donald Trump's policies and somehow or other, excuse me, and somehow or other that has upset Donald Trump. And I'm also in one way happy that Donald Trump has sued you. Let me explain. 
as soon as I saw that article, I texted Jim Coogan, the aforementioned Jim Coogan, who's a frequent guest on our show, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan. We talk mostly about impeachment issues facing Donald Trump. We talk, talk about all kinds of uh, judicial issues with him. But I texted him. I go, Jim, if the New York Times is being sued by Donald Trump, if Donald Trump is the plaintiff in that case, if he is suing the New York Times and forcing them in the court as, as opposed to the other way around, doesn't he open himself up to deposition by the New York Times attorneys? And Jim said, yes. It's pretty obvious. Donald Trump's the aggressor. He can't hide behind the shield. Well, I'm so busy running the country. I'm so busy as president of the United States. If he's the one who took the case to court in the first place, so New York Times attorneys, go to work. In fact, figure out some way to force Donald Trump to release his federal income tax statements. I would love to see that happen as a result of Donald Trump's suit against the New York Times. We got a great show today, everybody. Miles Conflassen from In These Times will be in here. I'm sure we're going to be moaning and groaning about the New York Times. Plenty in his uh, appearance. Miles was, was not no here collusion. last week. No collusion. <laughs> oh, so thanks. Thanks for that reminder, Donald Trump. Miles was not here last week, D, D as you remember. Bronco was here. Remember that? Yeah. And uh, no New Zealand accents, okay, D? Yeah, no please. No New Zealand please. accents. Miles Conflassen will be talking about all the political issues today. Peter P.C. Cunningham, our our favorite moderate and centrist Democrat will be here today. Pete says he may bring his guitar. Fingers crossed. We need music. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we'll record that bad boy. And we, what? What a great idea! Yeah. Uh, and uh, Pete uh, promises. Great, we record every show anyway. Every, what Pete, a great idea! No, but we could use PC opening the show. <laughs> yeah, doing uh, his favorite Bob Dylan song. Okay, well, that, that may cross the copyright line again. <laughs> Can I mention Bob Dylan's name? You can Uh-oh. mention him, yeah. Here comes the cease and desist letter. <laughs> PC has promised not to sue us if we play one of his songs. Could you imagine he sings a song in the studio, and then when he's done, he goes, you can't play that. What? You just sang. Sorry, boys. Uh, anyway, PC will be in there. Got plenty to talk about with him. Uh, Lisa Solomon and Edgar Ramon, part of our uh, cannabis conversation. Isn't that what we call it, D? Cannabis, cannabis conversation? Cannabis conversations. Uh, how about S at the end. Reaper, reefer wrap-up? No. no. No reefer. Okay. Cannabis conversations. A lot of cannabis talk out of us. And uh, so a lot of political talk, cannabis talk, and a lot of other good things. But before we do any of that, the young man from Alton, the man they call Dr. D, with the news. Hi there. Yes, the Ben Jarofsky Show as a podcast, is one year old. Hey, Ben. <laughs> Happy anniversary. Yeah, man. Happy anniversary to you, too. Did you give me anything? Yeah. I got you a bagel. Oh, yeah. It was delicious. <laughs> Thank you. I got you a bagel. What'd you get me? <laughs> I'm here. Okay, but I'm hitting the buttons. Know, yeah, it's dead. <laughs> That's more than good enough. Yeah, as we said earlier, uh, <laughs> moving forward on the Ben Jarofsky show, new music. Yeah, we don't want to uh, get any copyright hits. So uh, we're out there. We're looking for music, all right? Like we said, we're going to record PC. Peter Cunningham, if he brings that guitar, if he's listening, he's like, all right, not bringing the guitar. <laughs> Please bring your guitar. We want. We need music. Uh, if, you're, or if you listen to this show and you're in a band, you want us to play your song, we'll play it. We don't care. We need music. You know what I mean? If you know of a band... Uh, that could use the exposure. We'll plug. We'll mention whatever shows they got coming up. Uh, I'll look up the Curls uh, event schedule, see what they got going on, because uh, we can't thank the Curls enough for that. I uh, sent them a message on the brown line today. Hey, Mick, we need music. Can we use your songs? <laughs> he said sure, buddy. Right God bless him, man. Mick Fansler. Big fan of Nancy Pelosi. Did you know that? Oh, <laughs> that's... <laughs> That's sarcasm, guys. No, it's it's Yeah, so uh, one year strong, the Ben Jarofsky Show is. And, uh, well, no matter what happens, we'll always have a show because I bought the equipment. So (laughs) no matter what, all right? Could be broadcasting from the middle of uh, the street. How about that? The intersection of... If I can plug my board in, we'll do a show, all right? So we're not... We've done segments, just so you know, from my room overlooking the the railroad tracks as the train roars by... My attic, yes, my attic. So yeah, we could take this show on the road. So you know, uh, you know, I may- wear my MAGA hat. Yeah, people were wondering about your hat. It's not a MAGA hat for anybody who's just now listening and, to the program. A napkin on the floor. Okay, man, why are you calling to things on the floor? And it was your napkin. So hey, no matter what, we're gonna be around. All right, we may have you may have to find us through a different place. Who knows? But we'll always be there because, like I said, I bought the equipment. Okay, that's good. That's to correct. Know. Thank you. All right, so let's happy find birthday. Out. By the way, I oh. would sing the song, but. 
I'm afraid of a cease and desist letter. So let's find out what's happening in Chicago and or Illinois this afternoon, like we always do. In only two days, and mainly thanks to two of the most highly elected officials in Illinois. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. That was a twofer there. (laughs) You've never done that before. That was really cool. (laughs) I know, right? Well, you know, one year, you know, try to switch it up a little bit. (laughs) Illinois' Democratic 12th District Senate House race has become the most talked about election in the state. More on that in moments. But first, we got to find out what our governor and Chicago mayor are up to today. Today, Governor J.B. Pritzker is at Southern Illinois University Carbondale Mm. to discuss the state building a third Department of Children and Family Services simulation training center in Southern Illinois. And, well... SIUC is still the same SIUC I remember. He may do a keg stand. Who knows? <laughs> they party really hard at that college. Mm, the rock and roll university, baby. I have been in that town. All right. So just want you to know that. Pritzker will head to Quincy, Illinois. You ever mm. been there? I'm not sure. Oh, quite you know the traveler. I mean, I, mean uh, you know, you ha- I think you re- I remember you asking this before, specifically about Quincy. And I just I couldn't remember. I can't remember if I've ever been there. Moving on, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot is at the Standard Club for a panel discussion on the future of Chicago. Ben Drosky, let's pretend you were invited to join this panel discussion <laughs> on the future of Chicago. Yeah. And listeners, trust me, pretending is the only way it's going to happen, all right? He rarely gets invited to anything. <laughs> I would not get invited to such a panel, that's for sure. But Ben, let's pretend you were at this panel. Wait, I was invited to the City Club. Yeah, for- let's see where that got us. Hey, where happened to my City Club certificate? <laughs> it's back there beyond the cookies and the, and the milk butter- carton. buttermilk carton. Yeah. What a weird show we had. (laughs) I had a certificate from the City Club. I just want everybody to know that. So, Ben, let's pretend you were invited to this specific panel discussion on the future of Chicago. Okay. Uh, Besides a bite of your avocado and cheese sandwich, what would you (laughs) offer to this discussion on the future of Chicago? What are some things you'd bring to the table? Well, all right. The the big issue facing the city of Chicago, it's about three big issues, but the, the top of the charts is how to pay for the obligations that we have. It's the same issue that we... Uh, face in the state of Illinois. And uh, this is a divide between Lori Lightfoot, our mayor, and her progressive critics in the Chicago City Council or in local politics. I realize a lot of our listeners are not from Chicago, D, so I always try to frame Chicago issues in the terms of larger national the context that they uh, might uh, understand. But Lori Lightfoot has been very reluctant to um, push forward with sort of progressive taxes that hit hardest on the wealthiest people. And there's all kinds of different taxes you, you could think of. I mean, a lot of them require uh, state approval. You know, you, you would need the uh, General Assembly uh, downstate to, uh, uh, in Springfield, excuse me, to approve them. Uh, and so so it's not always easy for her to do it right away. But she's in, in general reluctant uh, to do so uh, with progressive taxes. Rahm Emanuel was the same way. The fear is that somehow or other, if you push too far toward progressivity, you'll uh, alienate the well-to-do and they'll leave the city of Chicago. This is an age-old conflict here. I've been writing about it for years uh, in the reader, uh, column after column. And then there's the issue of how you spend your dollars. Uh, it's particularly your economic de- development dollars do you spend it uh, building up the neighborhoods that are already thriving or do you use it to build up the neighborhoods that are really hurting? And this has been a conflict for years, going back to Mayor Daley in the 90s, uh, throughout uh, the early part of this century and continuing with Rom, where the city of Chicago has paid, spent most of its economic development dollars in neighborhoods that are already gentrifying. Uh, Lori Lightfoot promised as a candidate to stop this. And uh, she stumbled at the start with allowing the Lincoln Yards development, the 78 development to go forward. Those are two massively funded uh, economic development plans in gentrifying areas. But since then, she's promised to uh, invest more money uh, in the, on west side neighborhoods and south side neighborhoods that are, are struggling for uh, development. She's promised to end poverty in the city of Chicago. She has, uh, for the first time ever, announced that it's, it is a problem. She's recognized this as a problem that so many black people have left the city of Chicago. Uh, we used to, I used to talk about this all the time with Alden Lowry when you come on the show, demographer Alden Lowry. The city of Chicago did not recognize this as a problem while it was going on uh, for the last 10 years or so. So I guess this is progress that at least uh, Lori recognizes it a problem. So how to raise the money, how to spend the money, that has been the age old debate here in this city for as long as I can remember. Anything else that you would uh, bring to the table on the future of Chicago discussion? Uh, Well, our public schools, I could go on and on about our public schools, but essentially every issue comes down to how are you gonna raise the money, 
And how are you going to spend the money? How are you going to divide up that pie? Uh, so even if it's the public schools, are you going to spend more money in poor schools to sort of compensate for the fact that those schools do not have the fundraising ability uh, on their own to raise money for programs? You know, the wealthier schools on the north side of Chicago, they have a, a wealthier parent base so they could do fundraisers to supplement the amount of money the board gives them. Poor schools do not have that parent base. In fact, I know uh, friends of my daughters who are public school teachers are constantly making solicitations on Facebook. Could you contribute to help us buy supplies? You know, it's, it's pretty sad when teachers are forced to make Facebook solicitations to raise money to buy supplies in poor schools on South Side neighborhoods. Uh, when in contrast, you have wealthier schools on the North Side that can have like a, a night out at the casino, a fundraiser night or something like that, D. Uh, by the way, did I ever tell you about the time when my kids were in school? I used to organize bowling for books fundraisers. Oh, did you love that? You love <laughs> bowling and books. Oh God, I was I love doing it. Holy fun. cow! Throw in a Bulls player and you're. But I was terrible at fundraising. I, like we barely broke even on that thing. Anyway, the, all the parents were like, oh, "You got to know how to do this, Ben. You got to charge more." Yeah, but you charge more, then the the parents who don't have a lot of money can't get there. Well, who cares about them? So that. I've lived through this struggle, D. You understand what I'm saying? So, uh, yeah, that's the, everywhere you look in the city of Chicago, that is sort of the paramount challenge. How are you going to raise the money and how are you going to spend it? All right, now let's talk about the Illinois primary elections. We are just weeks away and we have more candidate endorsement news. For those listening who may be new to Illinois, hi, welcome to Illinois. I'm Dennis. That's Ben. We need music. You know any uh, bands <laughs> to play music? Welcome to Illinois. We're pretty corrupt. And our governor is filthy rich. The following comes from the Illinois Political Bulldogs over at Illinois Politico and one Shia Kapos. Yoni Pizer supporters have opened their wallets big time, a sign that they'll push back against Governor J.B. Pritzker's big investment in challenger Margaret Croak in the 12th district house race. Ben, we talked about this yesterday. J.B. Pritzker backed her, gave her about uh, $57,000, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mayor Lightfoot, Yoni Pizer supporter, uh, donated, what, uh, about 2500 bucks. Sarah Feigenholtz, who held the seat before moving to the state Senate, has given $25,000 to Pizer's campaign. That's right. We're trying wow. to, yeah, trying 25, to keep... $25,000? $25,000. Well, that seems like a lot of money. Alderman Tom, well, it is a lot of money. Alderman Tom Tunney and his 44th Ward Democratic Organization gave a combined twenty. $24,250, while Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot donated yet another $2,500. So we're trying to match uh, old Margaret Croak's uh, campaign cash. Wait, there. time out. So Sarah Feigenholz, who used to be the state rep, is now the state senator, gave twenty five grand, but Lori Lightfoot only gave $2,500. Oh, yeah, she did. But come on. Even I know the difference between 25000 and 2500 <laughs> Come on, Lori, kick it a little more. She gave twenty five hundred yesterday. <laughs> oh, well, hold on, let me do the math. That means five thousand yeah. dollars. That's a lot of money, man. That is a lot of money. Uh, no, just in general, it's, it just strikes me as a lot of money for a Democratic primary and a state rep seat on the north side of Chicago. I don't want to be cynical, D. Should I not be cynical? Yeah, no. I'm not gonna be cynical. I don't want to be cynical. Okay. Um, I don't want to be jaded and cynical. All right. I'm not gonna be jaded and cynical. It's our happy birthday day. I'm going to be innocent and happy. Now, it just seems to me like I don't know if there's really much of a difference between any of the candidates running in that race. You understand what I'm saying, D? So, uh, but, you know, if you see a difference, J.B. Pritzker, Lori Lightfoot or Sarah Feigenholz, God bless you. As we said earlier this week, Pritzker maxed out with a $58,000 donation to Margaret Croak uh, from his campaign fund and separate individual donations from him and his wife. Mm. Less than three weeks away until the primary, Pizer has $136,340 cash on hand, and Croak has $221,671, according to Illinois Sunshine. All right, well, here's what I ask. I point this out. And again, I'm doing this all for people who may not live in Chicago or may not be aware of these uh, the peculiarities of politics in Chicago. This particular district is a well-to-do area on the North Lakefront, uh, the Lakeview area. And it could afford to have a really progressive state rep. And what do I mean by that, can afford to? Because in Chicago, traditionally, there's a fear that if any politician goes too far out in terms of offering up progressive programs or challenging the powers that be in the Democratic Party, uh, they will be punished 
by the powers that be. So for instance, aldermen have always been or traditionally been afraid of criticizing the mayor. They'll vote for whatever dumb idea the mayor has. If you're not from Chicago, you may not realize that this includes selling the parking meters, for instance, an asset worth about $10 billion. They sold it for $1 billion. The alderman approved that and praised the mayor for a deal in which we lost about $9 billion worth of assets. Okay, yes, so that, that's billion with a B. Thank you. So that's traditionally how politicians behave in the city of Chicago. Now, my f- feeling has always been that the wealthier community is, the more independent its representatives can afford to be because they can have a base of support that would protect them from retribution uh, by an all-powerful mayor. And I've, I've said this all along. There's also this notion in the city of Chicago that if an alderman or state rep speaks out against the powers that be, they, they will punish the constituents. They'll deprive services to the constituents, for instance. So if an alderman speaks out against, let's say, a $10 billion asset for a $1 billion, the mayor will somehow or other punish that community by de- depriving them of services. This is a worldview that Chicagoans have adopted and embraced, even though it defies all reality. There's no way in the world that a mayor, no matter how all-powerful that mayor may be, will punish a north side community as wealthy as the one in which Pizer and Croak are running. No way. Absolutely no way. Because those constituents would get on the phone and start chewing that mayor out big time. Those constituents are the ones who are probably going to raise money for that mayor big time. So that's exactly the kind of district that we could have independence and progressivity and representatives and aldermen willing to take a new look at age-old problems. So what I say to the folks in Lakeview, in that wealthy area along the lakefront that now suddenly has a vacancy, maybe you should consider which one of these two candidates would be, I don't know, the most progressive on issues like taxation, how you spend, all the issues I just talked about, (laughs) raising the money, and spending the money. All right, well, we know who uh, the mayor's back in. We know who the governor's back in. Ben Jarofsky, who you got in this 12th House Senate race? Are you uh, a Pizer guy or a croakhead? Well, first of all, there's about four other candidates running. I, I'm not ready to make an endorsement in this race. I need to do a little more investigation, study, and research, D. Uh, so I know you're going to say, oh, Ben, you're ducking and dodging. But nope, I need more time. So I'm not making an endorsement right now. Give me a little time. I'll endorse. I'll think. You know, I don't know. Am I allowed to even make endorsements? I don't think so. I don't know. Uh-oh, here comes another cease and desist letter. <laughs> yeah. No more endorsements. All right, we have the... I do rank every day. Well, there's my ranking of presidential candidates. You do rank. I do rank. You do rank. It's not rank. an endorsement, right? Can you, for 10 trivia points, what are my top three right now? Go. Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden. Joey B. Is anybody coming up strong behind Joey B? Mm, no. By the way, did you see uh, the public enemy and uh, Bernie? Sir- yes. <laughs> I guess you saw it. Yeah. <laughs> we got to talk to Miles Conflassi. That's so <laughs> What a brother, no. Uh, Sarah Silverman, what a combo. They're going to do a rally in Los Angeles. I saw this. Uh, I forget where I saw it. Uh, public enemy, Sarah Silverman, and Dick Van Dyke. Now, I know my younger listeners out there have no clue who Dick Van Dyke is. I loved, I'm more excited about Dick Van oh Dyke. Oh, my God. Than any, no, I love Sarah Silverman. Sarah Silverman was for Bernie in 2016. Did you know that, young man? Yes, I did. But then when uh, Hillary won the election, she criticized uh, Bernie supporters for being ridiculous uh, in their uh, opposition. I had to give her a lot of love for that, D. Give her a lot. A lot of my Bernie uh, fans, uh, friends were saying, oh, no, Ben ripped Sarah Silverman. No way. You have to, I, Trump versus Clinton, I'll relitigate that one. I was for Clinton 100% against Donald John Trump. So I agreed with Sarah. So she showed some cuts, but she's right back with Bernie in 2020. So you got to give her credit. All right, let's go to the live stream chat here. Thank you to everyone who has weighed in. And thank you to everyone who listens live every day. You guys are awesome. Okay. Oh, and Pat Rod sent us a, a song. We already got some songs. You can do the same if you know a band or, uh, you know. Wait, time out. Is it a band that Pat Rod's in? I don't know. I got to get the details. I just saw an email from Pat Rod and uh, on the Benny J Show at gmail.com. So I'm going to have to 
Mm. We'll give it a listen here in a few minutes. But if it's by the Eagles, we can't use it. <laughs> we can't use it, Pat Rod. <laughs> Hopefully it's not by the Eagles. On right. uh, more levels Alan, than, than one. Go ahead. Alan Drew weighed in. Alan says Lakeview will, uh, Lakeview will support a pseudo-lib. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I think he's right there. That's what they're going to end up with. Yeah. yeah. Can't argue with that. There's not going to be a Bernie supporter coming out of Lakeview anytime soon. Shout out to Jay Marie, long uh, longtime live stream chatter here. Jay Marie says, so the West and South side gets $20 million to share, and Lincoln Yards gets $1.7 billion. Uh, sounds like a column that I've written. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> Someone could do some math here in this city. Uh, yeah, though, they, here's the thing. I'm going to just, I have to riff on this one. Miles Confleson has entered the studio. Miles Confleson has entered the studio. Huge Bernie Sanders supporter. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I know he's really excited about that public enemy uh, and Dick Van Dyke. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he goes, yeah, he knows all about it. Uh, but this is funny, man. This is where the city of Chicago thinks people are really dumb in the city. And I'm really glad. Who, who raised this question? Jay Marie. Jay Marie, God bless you for raising this point. Because whenever they spend money on the west or south side, they have a press conference and they like talk about the money like it's this huge, overwhelming amount of dollars. And so let's say, let's say it's $20 million. Let's say we're spending $20 million, uh, you know, like big, big flashing lights. And then, like, whenever it's something uh, like a Lincoln Yards TIF deal, which is $1.3 billion, and even I know that $1.3 billion is more than $20 million, they never really talk about the $1.3 billion. They just go, well, we're building bridges. We're building roads. <laughs> like, the people of Chicago are so dumb, Jay Marie. They think you're so dumb that you don't know that $1.3 billion on one side of town is a lot more than $20 million on another side of town. Shout out to Kyle. What's happening, Kyle? Kyle says, state senators make a lot of money to donate $25,000 to a state race. Uh, yeah, that's what I, I mean. Kyle, I'm with you. That's why I said, you sure you didn't get a zero wrong in that thing? <laughs> no. Twenty-five thousand. And, and by the way, let's just talk about this for a moment. That Sarah Feigenholtz was the state. This is a deep dive into, into one district. I almost feel like we're spending too much time talking about this. But uh, well, since we're discussing, Sarah Feigenholz was the state rep. Uh, Johnny Cullerton, uh, Dennis's favorite state senator, left. How'd you know? And <laughs> I remember you guys swapped jokes when he was in the studio. Uh, and so the, the committeeman replaced Cullerton with Feigenholz, and that opened up uh, a uh, her old seat was vacant, and then the committeeman appointed uh, Pizer to fill it, and then she kicks money to Pizer. This is classic Chicago wheeling and dealing. <laughs> I don't know really what difference any of these uh, reps would make. Uh-oh, the cynic in me is coming out, ultimately. Ah, the there's the bin we know and love. <laughs> that old Chicago cynic jaded. <laughs> it's like I smoke cigarettes and drink booze every day. Oh, this city will never change. <laughs> Anyway. All right, shout out to Bruce Bruce. Bruce Bruce, uh, he's helping us out here. Like I said, if you just uh, tuned in here, uh, due to copyright issues, we are looking for new music yes. here on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Ones that, uh, songs that we can play. Miles Kanflassen's in a rock band. It's true. Maybe he can play something for us. All right, we need some music, we, man. And you're not going to sue us if we play it, are you? No. <laughs> All right. Cool. We got a cease and desist letter. Uh-oh, here comes another one. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce Bruce uh, says, hey, I got a few house cats that might be able to put an opening thing together for you guys. House cats? Yeah. I mean, like meow cats? <laughs> yeah, oh, like okay. meow Screeching cats. cats. Okay. Oh, man. Well, the Aristocats were uh, really, you know, the Aristocats were a uh, uh, rockin' band in that Disney film, right? They're super oh, jazzy. Oh, the Aristocats. Well, I thought you were talking about that uh, movie about the perfect joke. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen that movie? Oh, I have. That's yeah. a good one, too. Yeah. yeah. Not as jazzy, though. No, no. Oh, and then Alan says here, um, I, I don't think you. I don't think this is Ben that you're seeing, Alan. Alan says, there's someone at the gym who looks just like Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I've been so tempted to say hello, but I get gun shy. For, <laughs> not me. I can tell you that right now. I should be going working out more, but no. Yeah. Oh, hold on. I'm working out by lifting this coffee cup and have a delicious sip of that sometimes oh, water. nice nice so mm. there you are that's what's going on locally we'll keep you posted on these stories and other stories as today's program rolls right along let's pull up uh the song that uh pat rod sent us here it says here short but sweet guitar only i give permission for this song to be used for the ben jarofsky show so i think uh, this is a song from pat rod so let's hear it and uh, Pat's going to take us out. Don't go anywhere, everybody, because when we return, Miles Camp Lassen of In These Times will join us.
you know that 40% of the people in Illinois opt to be cremated? Well, it's true. And Chicagoland Cremation Options honors their wishes by providing cremation services directly to the general public. Chicagoland Cremation Options provides an affordable, ethical, and easy cremation arrangement, whether in person or online. Save thousands and streamline the process by going directly to Chicagoland Cremation Options. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Here's how you reach them. ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time. ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. It's the butter cow, which has nine hearts to represent the nine essential nutrients in milk. That's right. It's made entirely out of butter. And, you know, it's a state fair tradition since at least 1922. Like a fresh morning spring. (laughs) Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago (laughs) Sun-Times. As long as we don't get sued. As long as we don't get a cease and desist letter. Keep playing that music. Who's, which, where's this music from? Our good friend Jeff Manuel. This is Jeff Manuel. All right, very good. Thanks, Jeff Manuel. Uh, Miles Conflassen promises to uh, go into the studio and record some songs that we can use, and he promises he won't have his lawyer send a cease and desist letter. Is that correct? You have my word. All right, very good. Peter Cunningham will be coming in the studio afterwards. Our favorite uh, centrist uh, will be bringing his guitar, and he can sing some songs for us. And... Uh, Leonard Goodman will be in the studio in a week from now. We'll be debating, discussing bloggers and Trump. I'm looking forward to that. I have uh, today's column. Uh, I have a little fun with uh, Blago and Trump. And Leonard Goodman, of course, is um, was uh, Blago's lawyer. Uh, he also plays in a rock band. I did not know this. He I've seen me, them. Okay, and I he I told him he should bring his guitar to the studio. And I've I, seen him cover Tom Petty. Very good. It, really? Yeah, his his rock band. They're great. Uh, all right, Leonard Goodman. We're going to use your music, and I don't want to hear from your lawyer or you. Okay, no cease and desist letters. Okay, you come to the studio, bring your guitar, play it, we'll record it. Can he do like Santana or something? I bet. He's, would we get he's a cease talented. and desist? If if like if you played Santana, yeah. would we get a cease and desist letter from Santana's lawyer? No, I don't know. How Explaining all. Facebook to you is hard. <laughs> cease and desist. Oh my God, it's. It's so tough. Cease and desist letter. Anyway, welcome back to the show, Miles. You weren't Thank here you. last week. You were in uh, New Orleans, correct? I was. I was out celebrating Mardi Gras, the, you know, carnival down there. Uh, incredible uh, city, incredible vibe. I really recommend everybody, at least once in your life, go down there and experience Mardi Gras. And uh, in your place, we had, substituting for you, if- we had Bronco. Bronco uh, Marstich, who's a, a great journalist at both In These Times and uh, Jacobin, who recently wrote uh, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden, a new, really comprehensive book, I think, that really lays out all of the ways in which uh, Joe Biden would represent not just a, you know, a backwards turn in American politics away from kind of a progressive direction that much of our politics have been moving in, but also real threat to democracy because of how uh, wrapped up his entire career has been in, you know, can wealthy campaign contributors and cozying up to dictators and supporting really aggressive militaristic uh, foreign policy, you know, the whole gamut. So um, I'm really glad that Bronco got to go go on here. He said uh, he would be keen to go on (laughs) again, which is a little New Zealandism. I'm not going to do my Bronco imitation uh, because he made fun of it last week when I did. Hello, mate. (laughs) Anyway, I just did it. We lost uh, six New Zealand listeners last week because of that. Well, he's a he proudly identifies as a Kiwi, though, which is what, you know, which is what the New Zealander native New Zealanders are called as the Kiwis. I did not know that. It's true. Uh, But uh, anyway, I uh, tended to, to defend Joe Biden. Uh, my list, I, have, I make every guest give me three candidates in order. Uh, and my lefty guests usually just duck and dodge this one after they get done with Elizabeth Warren yeah. and Bernie Sanders. So I can just see you ducking and dodging <laughs> if I ask you to come up with a third. But Joe Biden right now is my third. My argument for Joe Biden, I gave this to Bronco when he was on the show last week. My argument is he's a traditional Democratic politician. And if the party is moving left, he will head in that direction because that's what politicians do. Mm-hmm. I don't think he has a strong fixed ideology. Uh, in I used to say this all the time. Uh, now that I'm thinking about this, Miles, in regards to Rahm Emanuel, not so sure it's case with Rahm. I'm starting to think he does have a fixed ideology, uh, but I don't believe uh, that Joe Biden does. In contrast to, let's say, Michael Bloomberg. Yeah. 
I would, I would, I'm making the argument, and get your response to it. I'm distinguishing Joe Biden from Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg has never had to make any kind of accommodation uh, as a public figure to the left side of the Democratic Party. He uh, has always been able to use to his, any side of the Democratic any, Party. Well, that's a valid point. <laughs> well, he is now on this apology yeah. tour because he yeah. recognizes he cannot possibly win the nomination without black votes. Yeah. So he's now on an apology tour on one issue, stop yeah. and frisk. Uh, but so I would argue, get your thoughts on this one. Uh, this is a challenge. I would argue that Joe Biden and the Joe Biden wing of the Democratic Party would be more accommodating to people like you than Michael Bloomberg. Yeah, well, I don't know if necessarily people like me, but certainly the kind of politics and the movement that uh, are represented, I think, by the uh, Sanders campaign and more broadly by this kind of upsurge in progressive activism we've seen, not just in the Democratic Party base, but really um, across the country. And I completely agree. I mean, I think that Michael Bloomberg is a much bigger threat both to democracy and to our um, the future of dealing with critical issues uh, in our country, you know, exploding wealth inequality, um, a racist criminal justice system from issue after issue. Michael Bloomberg really operated as an authoritarian in many ways. And as, as you know, when you look at the trampling of civil liberties under his administration in New York, whether it was, you know, clearing out the Occupy Wall Street encampments or whether it was the uh, RNC convention in 2004 that they had when they just, you know, kettled all these protesters and slapped all of these obscene uh, charges against them that they eventually had to drop. I mean, if you believe in civil liberties at all, uh, Michael Bloomberg is not your friend, nor is he your candidate. And, you know, you just see it in how cynical his campaign is. What, they have this new, have you seen this hat they have out yeah. now they're selling, this not a socialist hat? Uh, bring in the boss is what it says on the back. Look, unless you're talking about Bruce Springsteen, there's nobody that wants to bring in the boss. Everybody hates their boss. Yeah. What is you, right. how, how are you thinking that that's going to win over a boss? But it's, I mean, that's the, the, the play he's making is just to be, you know, attacking uh, the Sanders wing of the party. So I do think that Michael Bloomberg would be um, a much worse uh, nominee, of course, than uh, I have Joe to, Biden. I have to say, when you, you mentioned that uh, not a socialist hat, my good friend Joanna sent me that text yesterday with a picture. And I thought she was, it was a joke. Yeah. I thought he was joke. Uh, she was sending a joke because it said that they were charging seventeen ninety five for the hat. So the richest man ever to run for president of the United States, one of the richest men in the world, He's the richest, yeah. Is he the eighth? Yeah. Wow, I give you credit for knowing that. Do you know the seven ahead of him? I don't. Okay. <laughs> well, I know the top two are Bill Gates and uh, Jeff Bezos is up at the top. Warren Buffett, maybe three or four. So He's my favorite rich guy, Warren Buffett. But anyway, uh, what, what a cynical move to charge the richest guy, the eighth richest man in the world is charging people, Miles, seventeen ninety five for a hat. Shouldn't he just... <laughs> Give the hats away. The dude's got $60 billion, man. Well, one thing that he is doing that I, I mean, I don't respect it, but I think it's, it could be a boon is that he's offering, you know, six to $8,000 a month for these campaign operatives. So you can just sign on board, you know, and it's his, his ploy to just, you know, buy up everybody in the political sphere so that none of these other campaigns can access any of these um, the, uh, the, these employees. And I think that that's his way of any, you know, there's also, I mean, with the, not the, not a socialist hat, I think it is a little tongue in cheek, even though it is a real thing. He's trying to, you know, pay all these media, social media influencers and, you know, just pretty much anybody he'll pay you $125 to post some pro Mike Bloomberg content on your, you know, just your meager social media site, mm -hmm. because he has no actual movement behind him. There's nothing grassroots about Michael Bloomberg's campaign. And he, that's, his whole uh, approach is saying, look, I'm not bought up by anybody. I'm just using my own money. You don't have to worry about like me being in um, thrall to any, you know, interests outside of myself. Well, that is incredibly terrifying when it comes to, you know, you representing the will of the people if you never have to answer to anybody, especially when you look at the other side of the spectrum where, you, you know, Bernie's uh, completely sworn off any corporate donations, including from billionaires like Mike Bloomberg. So I think that it really represents the, the contrast right now in this Democratic primary. All right, here's the interesting thing. I mean, we're looking far ahead, just that last point. Uh, right now, Bernie's looks like the favorite to win the nomination, although we'll get into what could be done to stop him from winning the nomination. But let's say he is the nominee. Michael Bloomberg has pledged to continue spending his money uh, to whoever the Democratic nominee is on behalf of the Democratic nominee, do you think Bernie Sanders should 
allow that money to be spent or should he oppose the expenditures of billions of dollars by a or hundreds of millions of dollars by a billionaire uh, to uh, essentially on his behalf? I don't think there's any reason to believe anything Michael Bloomberg says. And I don't think, and the reason I say that is because Michael Bloomberg is also pledged. And what he is actually doing right now is spending millions of dollars in st- strictly an anti-Sanders campaign in order to keep him from being the nominee. This is not, and, and they announced this a few days ago, I mean, this is not uh, <laughs> normal Democratic politics. In, in many ways, this has been a very tame primary. You know, there have not been, even when you look at 2008, the kind of critiques that uh, Barack Obama was making of Hillary Clinton were much uh, sharper than most of what you've seen so far. Now we have this whole, you know, uh, freak out over Fidel Castro comments and, you know, Bloomberg's doing every. They said they're going to do a huge oppo drop. This is exactly what they're, you know, the, all the Democratic Party establishment people are, you know, banging Bernie for, for criticizing Joe Biden or anybody else. They're like, oh, how dare you trample on somebody who could be our nominee. But when it's Michael Bloomberg doing it, spending his own millions of dollars um, on a, a campaign to trash Bernie Sanders, who most likely, as you said, will be the Democratic nominee. They don't have any words. And then the person they get upset at is Bernie for saying, you know, oh, you're not going to take his money as if we should accept that Michael Bloomberg's role in American democracy is somehow a positive one. This is somebody who, you know, was spoke at the RNC to back George W. Bush in 2004 after he had started the most disastrous foreign policy venture in our lifetimes, the Iraq war. This is somebody who, um, you know, it, it, it took on this stop and frisk program that was ruled unconstitutional. And yeah, he might apologize for it now, but there's on tape just saying these absolutely uh, racist things. I just really don't think that the issue right now should be, oh, Bernie, what, you know, it's on you to decide who, you know, are you going to take this money or not? When that person who's supposedly offering the money is spending millions mm-hmm. of dollars to trash you. So yeah. I think that that's the real issue here. Well, I would say this before we move on, take the money. Uh, you got to beat Donald Trump. He's going to come at him with every single nickel he has. And um, I got to have to say this to you uh, before we move on. I, you know, I've told you this before. I've said this many times on the show. For some reason, I'm on the Tea Party mailing list. And as a result, now I'm getting, I'm getting stuff from Mitch McConnell. I got something from Melania Trump. I'm Donnie Trump Jr. is sending me emails all the time. Somehow or other, they they think I'm a big time Republican, uh, which that's fine and whatever. I just, I get their emails. But I got an email today uh, from some right wing group. I can't remember which one, Miles. Uh, was talking about uh, Michael Bloomberg as a super lefty. Mm-hmm. I'm not making this up. Super lefty uh, and uh, far lefty or something like that. Now, so this is the point I've always made. There, No matter who the Democratic nominee is, even if it's Michael Bloomberg, yeah. <laughs> who's selling not a socialist hats yeah. for $17.95, by the way, anyone dumb enough to give Michael Bloomberg the eighth richest man in the world, 17, give it to our show. We could use it more than Michael Bloomberg. That's for damn sure. Anyway, um, so they're going to, they're going after the Democrat as a super lefty anyway. So you might as well really have a super lefty at the uh, head of the ticket. All right. Uh, you were saying that it was mild. This the nominee. Uh, the primary fight has been mild compared to previous ones. It wasn't so mild on what was it Tuesday in the yeah. debates, and the gloves were off, and they were all coming after Bernie. And yeah. Bernie had that great line. He goes, "I hear my name mentioned a lot here on stage." Uh, so, how do you think Bernie did? Which uh, after uh, uh, with that onslaught? Well, you know the old famous line is, you know, if you if if you go for the king, you better not miss. And I can't. It, it it's hard to take away from that debate that anybody else won besides Bernie Sanders. And if you look at the you know the polling that was done after it in terms of who people thought both you know performed best in the debate and who they thought after watching the debate was the best candidate to take on Bernie Sanders or take on Donald Trump. It's Bernie Sanders. I mean, that's, and if you are not changing that actual dynamic through the debate, you, you know, it was a failure on your part because you, you, if you haven't been able to slow Bernie's momentum, I don't see how you can take it as anything else but uh, NL. And for all of these candidates, you know, they're trying their best to reposition themselves. But if there's no other way for me to look at it, some, you know, I've followed Democratic Party politics for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's Bernie's party right now in terms of how the, you know, he's defining the terms of the debate in terms of how he's, you know, taking up all the oxygen in the room. So none of these people can really 
put forward their worldview in a compelling way, they're all responding to Bernie's worldview, which is about you know taking on corporate power and working to uh, tame the you know the forces that uh, have defined American politics for so long, and that's you know militarism, that's uh, you know the concentrated economic power, all these issues that terminally have been uh, keeping the United States from providing more social programs for their people. Um, Bernie has cast them as the enemies, and people power is the solution. Mm -hmm. And that has just defined how this entire debate has, has, has gone on, and I think that that was the case on Tuesday as well. So I think you know on Saturday and then again on Tuesday, we're going to start to see that how that uh, plays out in the electoral arena. All right. Now, uh, you sent me an article. Uh, you, usually, I'm sending you the articles to read. You sent me the homework assignment now. Uh, and this article is actually kind of relevant to our next guest, and I love it when my guests show up early. Pete Cunningham is here, and he's brought his guitar, and he's probably not going to sue us if we play the music. We've had some issues with cease and desist letters, Pete, but we'll explain them to you. Can I just real quick, as an aside, uh, we, you know, we're talking a lot about lawsuits today. Uh, the uh, I'm not totally familiar with all the issues around copyright and libel laws around these things, but I was, uh, I don't know if the listeners know this, but I was subject of a copyright suit from back in the day when I was uh, co-publisher of the a publication called the Occupied Chicago Tribune, which was a... Uh, <laughs> don't tell me the Trib sued you? The Trib sued us. We went to, uh, I got, you know, so I got an actual letter in the mail uh, uh, about this lawsuit. Michael Deutsch and the great people at the People's Law Office represented me and my uh, fellow colleagues and went to the International Copyright Court in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, and we won. We beat the Tribune, so... Uh, the Tribune to, dragged you into court? That's right. How much did they represent? Did you say they represented you pro bono, free of charge? Yeah, the People's Law Office. So how much? I always say this. I, and it was documented by Michael Miner in uh, the, the the Great Chicago Reader. You know what? I probably read it and forgot about it. Now, because uh, it was about what ten years ago? No, something like. When was that. Occupy? Was, uh, 2011. Correct? I think that yeah, I think that this was in 2012. Is when this, when this lawsuit was put forward. I always point out I'm a home subscriber to Chicago Tribune. Are you telling me my uh, annual subscription fees went to pay their attorney? To That's right. You? We actually looked into what they were paying their attorney, who was going after us with this, which is a guy named Doug Masters, um, and it was a lot. He was on a massive retainer, so yes, there was a huge amount of expenditures just to go after us for publishing this paper. That was lampooning, and that's why ultimately we won the suit. Is because they said, you know, it's not copyright when you're clearly doing satire when Our you're when parody. you're lampooning, and we we did. I mean, we used they they said we were stealing their mark um, by you know calling it the Occupied Chicago Tribune. It was part of this whole ecosystem of Occupy papers to try to provide some alternative to the corporate media we're so used to. I mean, you know, we uh, you know trashed Rahm Emanuel's budget and went after you know some of various issues in the city. We're talking about the teacher strike back then. So, you know, I I, uh, I had a, my brief uh, connection to the Occupy movement. And I think it was 2012, right around the time the Tribune was suing you. They asked me to come out and give a talk. I'm not making any of this up about TIFFs, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very difficult uh, it's a very concept. difficult concept to talk about anyway with anybody because it got it property tax issues and stuff like that. So they gave me a bullhorn. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> by the way, I was like loving that bullhorn. Yeah. I got to talking to bullhorn. It's old school. It's like jumping up on the soapbox. Yeah, man. But I'm explaining tips to a bunch of anarchists who are about 22 years old have never seen a property tax. Yeah. It was a challenge. <laughs> uh, and then they're like, huh, man. Anyway, that was my. It's on, by the way, there's somebody did a video of me talking to the bullhorn, talking tips. You can see. Well, look up that look up that story if you're interested. It's called Masters of Our Domain by Mike Miner. All right. So we went on a tangent there. But what I was going to ask you is about the article you sent me, yeah. uh, which is essentially a warning that we've been hearing a lot uh, from uh, the 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 moderate wing of the Democratic Party. The congressional leaders, uh, Nancy Pelosi, etc., are very concerned that if Bernie's at the head of the ticket, the Democrats will lose many, if not all, of the seats they gained uh, in 2018, and the Republicans will take control of the House of Representatives. This is this is a, a line that the, they're putting out there, so that the Republicans and the assumption is that uh, Donald Trump would win, would then go back to controlling all 
uh, the House, the Senate, the Supreme Court, and uh, the White House. Uh, you sent me the article, your response to it. Well, th- so this article is called Democratic Leaders Willing to Risk Party Damage to Stop Bernie Sanders. And uh, it's really, uh, you know, well put together piece. And in, in it, the reporters reached out to around 100 of these uh, so-called superdelegates, people that are party officials and the uh, folks that will have a say if the convention goes to a second ballot, which basically means nobody uh, on the first round gets to this magic number of elected delegates that you have to reach. I think it's like ni- a little bit over 1,900. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they say, these almost 100 uh, super delegates, almost unanimously, they will not follow the will of the people. They are willing to um, pursue choosing another nominee and perhaps somebody that is not even uh, in the race right now, the two names that were heavily floated that are that are cited in the article are Sherrod Brown, who's the um, senator from Ohio, of course, and Michelle Obama. Um, these are the people that these party leaders are looking to to come in at the convention in July in Milwaukee, subvert the will of the people, even if you know Bernie Sanders or whoever uh, is at, is ahead in the delegate count. Um, and clearly has won the most contests, they will you know, decide to just hand the nomination to somebody that nobody in the Democratic Party has voted for in order to somehow preserve what they think is the, um, you know, the will of the Democratic Party establishment, which is what they represent. Now, I, you, know, you just cited the uh, critique of uh, Bernie Sanders that he'll you know, be a disaster for down-ballot races, that he will lose against Donald Trump. I have not seen any single shred of evidence to back up that claim. You know, I, I don't know. I've, there was a poll out today from Pennsylvania. Bernie Sanders is the only candidate beating Donald Trump in pencil in the critical state of Pennsylvania right now. Biden is losing to him. Bloomberg is losing to Trump. So I, you know, I think that there's this is a fear that is uh, explained through, you know, we don't want to lose. We want to be able to win. But what it's really about is retaining. Um, the power centers within the Democratic Party establishment, which is what is uh, threatened by the prospect of Bernie Sanders becoming president. Mm. Well, uh, to this point, yesterday I took a uh, I took a look at bat- what happened in 1972. Uh, people my age, uh, I always say this, Miles. People my age, we're we're like uh, that. Bur- it's burned into our head what happened in 1972 when George McGovern ran against Richard Nixon and, and lost a massive race. Uh, he lost. I think he only got uh, one state and the district. Columbia. Uh, it was perhaps the biggest landslide, electoral college landslide in the history of this country. And so uh, Democrats, you know, were very concerned ever since. That uh, justifies the move to the right or to the center. Uh, so we never have a 1972 again. And I took a look just out of curious curiosity what happened in the congressional races and the Democrats held the House. Yeah. So, uh, and they gained seats in the Senate. Mm-hmm. So, so I feel that a lot of this um, is is like trying to peddle panic, yeah. uh, so to get people afraid of voting for Bernie, because the reality is I do believe. I'm really curious what Pete Cunningham will say this, but I'm really I do believe that uh, voters are capable of splitting their vote. So, for instance, if you are, let's just say you are uh, a uh, a suburban swing voter, and you're afraid, so afraid of Bernie Sanders as a president that you would vote for Donald Trump, despite all the issues that you disagree with him on, including how he's maybe handling the coronavirus outbreak, uh, you would vote for Donald Trump. I still think you have the capability then to vote for Lauren Underwood. Yeah. Do, you, do you understand yeah. what I'm saying? Or Sean Kasten. I, the notion that you would just automatically vote for whoever was the Republican con, uh, con, congressional candidate just because you don't like Bernie Sanders. Uh, I just don't think that's supported by evidence. And it's the same things True on the other hand, if Michael Bloomberg is the head of the Democratic Party, I don't, it's not like people, lefties in uh, Lauren Underwood's district are going to vote, I'm so outraged, you're not going to vote, you're not going to show up. So I think a lot of them would still vote for Lauren Underwood because they would see it, uh, you know, it was a bulwark against Maybe President Bloomberg. I, yeah. I just, I, I don't buy into that fear. I don't either. And I think that that's, uh, I mean, panic is the perfect word for it. I think it's just trying to sow discord. And it's so, uh, you know, it's fascinating to me as somebody who has been, you know, covering politics from the left for a while to see how, you know, at, at one 
moment the Democratic Party can be pushing forward, you know, these uh, uh, calls for unity and then in the next breath say we need to do everything possible to stop the most popular candidate and the one who is winning the most votes from becoming the nominee mm-hmm. somehow in supposedly in the interest of party unity when to me that uh would seems like that would be a disaster for the party certainly it would uh i think lead to um the re-election of donald trump if you know they if if the will of the people is not uh a, you know allowed to choose the nominee when it comes to the convention. David Plouffe, who's, you know, the, who's uh, worked on uh, President Obama's campaign, he said the same thing. He said it would be a disaster for the Democratic Party and they wouldn't recover for decades, you know, if that happened. And he's, this is somebody who has been in the central corridors of the Democratic Party establishment. So I don't see how there's any other play than to say, look, we're willing, and that's what this article says. That's why it says that they're willing to risk party damages because they admit they talk to, uh, you know, there's only nine of the almost 100 superdelegates they talk to who say they're definitely going to vote. They're definitely going to um, give their uh, delegates to whoever has the most votes. The rest of them all say even if it causes an intraparty schism, even if it results in disaster, even if it results in Donald Trump winning, they're willing to risk that in order to stop mm. Bernie Sanders. And to me, that is just the opposite of unity. I mean, it just goes against what we supposedly believe in as you know a party that is uh, you know, committed to democratic values. If the Democratic Party wants to actually live up to uh, what, what it what it says, I don't see how you could possibly buy into this whole Stop Sanders movement. Yeah, no, I and I, I look at it the other way. Uh, I've always I'm on the left side of the Democratic Party, but I've always voted Democratic. Every candidate <laughs> that is one that. Uh, the primary I've voted for, I could list the whole group of them, uh, starting with my first election. I was a Jimmy Carter uh, in 1976. That's how old I am. And uh, so, yeah, I, at some level, I think it would be, even if the worst fears of Democrats as to a Bernie Sanders-led party were proved to be true, I think it would be more damaging to the Democratic Party to have that kind of a fight where... Uh, the candidate who comes in with uh, the majority or the plurality, that's a tough mm-hmm. word to say today, of the votes uh, was not the nominee and said they went outside the whole process. Yeah. I, can't, I can't say, I mean, I, I would think like going to like Elizabeth Warren would be a better, if you're, if you're so afraid of Bernie that you're going to make this move to stop, it would just make more sense to go with somebody who was actually in the race, who yeah. actually you know, put her name out there. Uh, well, I think that's why you see, you know, was Elizabeth Warren was on CNN, uh, was it last night or the night before in the town hall and got asked that very question of, do you, uh, you know, you said on the debate stage in the previous debate, would you support whoever has the, you know, most uh, votes and the most delegates by the end of the race? And mm-hmm. she, along with the rest of the candidates, except for Bernie Sanders, said no, that she wouldn't do that, that she's going to, you know, go by the will of what the process the party has worked out would be which is that you know these superdelegates have a much bigger role now you know uh, and and her explanation was Bernie wrote these rules mm-hmm. which is so not true I mean if you look at the unity reform commission that Bernie Sanders put forward they all were trying to get rid of superdelegates completely yeah. they wanted no role for them so it's not Bernie's choice and Elizabeth Warren was on record saying I don't believe superdelegates should exist just a few years ago and then and saying that we should believe in the will of the people so to me I mean it's hard for me to imagine if she doesn't start winning races which could happen you know but it doesn't look likely except for Massachusetts that Elizabeth Warren has much of a path in any of these states, how she could then be the consensus nominee if she doesn't have the most votes. Um, I mean, it's possible, but that seems unlikely. And she's not named in this New York Times article. The people named are Sherrod Brown and Michelle Obama. Yeah, no, but I'm still a big fan of Elizabeth Warren. All right, uh, Miles, uh, before uh, we let you out the door and bring on Peter Cunningham, uh, anything you want to tell folks about, any articles you wrote that you're proud of that you want to share with people? Well, uh, as I mentioned, I've been uh, off enjoying myself in the great city of New Orleans. I can't say again. Everybody get down there, have a bow boy, have some gumbo, 
do it up. So I've not been. Uh, You've not uh, been working hard. All right. <laughs> Get not, back to work. But not doing the pen to paper. However, in these times, we've been we've had a bunch of great articles lately, including this one by um, Nuala Bashari that is uh, about how it was the cover story from our most recent issue about how the Sanders campaign is taking on this new tack of trying to bring in new voters. So people, you know, not so much seeking out swing voters, which has been the traditional strategy of the Democratic Party when it comes to trying to win people over. What Sanders campaign has been doing is trying to bring in people that traditionally have not voted. And that's what we saw in um, Nevada, certainly, where the Latino um, uh, voting uh, numbers really did increase substantially. And Bernie Sanders won 73 percent of the Latino vote in Nevada and, you know, in a race with like eight people in it. So pretty impressive. So um, that article is up on our website right now. I recommend people to uh, look for it. And I want to give a big happy anniversary to the Ben Jarofsky yeah, show. Wow. <laughs> Y'all made it. Yes, one thank you. It was really nice yeah, of you. But we're yeah. not allowed to sing happy birthday. Yes, I think... we are. It's in, it is in the public domain. I think it is should it? be. Can you please believe me? <laughs> we have people who posted it on the live stream chat. People posted it on Facebook. But is it is it birthday or anniversary? Happy birthday. Bo- both? I don't, happy, happy birthday. birthday. We could do the Stevie Wonder version. Uh, can I do the Stevie Wonder version? Mm. Of the, I don't know. Here comes a cease and desist letter. Here comes a lawyer. <laughs> No, anyway, yeah, it's been one year. Can you believe that? Man? Wow. Well, one hey, to many, many more. You know, many, many more. Yeah. Uh, all right, Miles, thank you so much. Uh, Peter Cunningham on deck. He's brought his guitar and he has promised not to sue us if he plays a song. So we'll bring uh, Peter on. Downloaders, we live stream this program. It's true. Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time at both Chicago Sun Times and Chicago Reader websites and the Chicago Sun Times YouTube channel. And when you join us on the YouTube channel, you can join our live stream chat. That's right. Hang out with Pat Rod, Alan, Johnny Joe, Dragon Slayer 19, and the rest on the live stream chat. Hour number two, coming up.